the sad girl is having a moment. It may have originated as a Tumblr aesthetic, but now the sad girl is everywhere. The music of Billie Eilish, Lana Del Rey, and Phoebe Bridgers, TV shows like Fleabag, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, You're the Worst, and Dickinson. Emily Dickinson was the original sad girl. And books like My Year of Rest and Relaxation, Normal People, and Conversations with Friends. The problem's that I'm in love with you and you obviously don't feel the same! These huge cultural movements may not touch directly on contemporary women's struggles, but the characters at their heart are all attempting to reflect a truth of what being a millennial or Gen Z woman is, and create a space to talk about how difficult, traumatic, and just tiring it can be. I'm gonna let destiny take the wheel, like Jesus supposedly does sometimes. The sad girl's sadness isn't a heavily politicized rage, it's an internalized burden, a directionless angst that's been filtered through music, film, and literature. Here's our take on the sad girl and how she's giving us a catharsis for difficult times. Pop music typically feels joyous and optimistic, so why has the sad girl found such a home there? Some say that sad girl pop as a mainstream genre took off during Billie Eilish's ascendance and inspired talents like Olivia Rodrigo and Gracie Abrams. Still, many female pop artists before her have imbued their music with deep melancholy. Think Robin, Fiona Apple, and Lana Del Rey. Many argue that Fiona Apple pioneered sad girl pop in the 90s, while in the modern era, it was Lana who kicked off this current sad girl moment. Her music came with a specific aesthetic that felt moody, melancholy, and nostalgic, and got embraced by communities on Tumblr. It has an immersive quality. Fans could lose themselves in Lana's music and then curate their own aesthetic and mood boards in conversation with that music. I've just been making like moving collages online since I was 17. It's just a passion of mine. Emma Madden describes this aesthetic as soft grunge, something which both beautified and subdued pain, making it consumable and even aspirational. Lana's song Pretty When You Cry and the glut of hashtagged selfies that it inspired reflected this tension between beauty and pain, while making fans feel they're somehow a part of the sad girl world Lana had created. Then, Billie Eilish's music, while clearly indebted to Lana's, moved away from this high glamour aesthetic and towards something even stranger and darker. Bury a friend. I wanna end me. Where Lana was styled somewhere between a vintage pinup and a blue jeans Midwesterner, Billie's early looks were all about covering her body up and removing any trace of sex appeal, almost performing a kind of masculinity by wearing bean-knit hats and oversized sportswear. Instead of trying to glamorize her sadness, Billie's music instead invites her fans to try and experience it through her eyes. There was all these labels and radio people that wouldn't play me because I was too sad and no one was gonna relate to it. That was just funny to me because I was like, everybody has felt sad. Still, Eilish's music is performing a similar function by creating a safe space for fans to feel these feelings. And now, Phoebe Bridger's concerts have become known for ending with a cathartic mass scream along to her song, I Know the End. It's helped create even more closeness between fans and artists in an era where fans desire that intimacy more than ever. Fans share memes of Phoebe Bridgers and other sad girl artists like Mitski and Taylor Swift alongside the line, therapists hate them. These singers are not just pop stars to us, they're confidants, and their songs reflect back the personal anxieties and concerns their audiences feel. 
Sad Girls Rise also aligns with a general shift toward more women telling their stories, with an emphasis on exploring their interior selves. I'm planning to write an article that exposes all of my vulnerabilities to the entire internet. In 2012, Lena Dunham's Girls was a turning point for the way it rejected the common wisdom that a female main character had to be likable or even relatable. Hannah Horvath is often arrogant, elitist, and entitled. She's also importantly anti-glamour. While we do see her taking her clothes off and having sex, rarely is she styled or shot in a sexy way. She's not there for the pleasure of the male gaze. Instead, everything feels like a window into who she is and how she feels. I'm scared, okay? I'm really scared all the time. This intimacy was taken even further in 2016 with the cultural phenomenon that was Fleabag. The protagonist's fourth wall breaking quips to camera act as a self deprecating disassociation from the grief and the heartbreak she goes through across the two seasons. <laughs> He's a bit annoying, actually. What is that? Meanwhile, there is again that tension between beauty and pain. This is the show that turned a black jumpsuit into a must have fashion item, whose promo image, Fleabag staring into the camera with mascara running down her face, could be be taken from a hashtag pretty when you cry Tumblr page. No matter what I do with my hair, it just keeps falling in this really chic way. Such was Fleabag's cultural impact that she has almost helped create a genre in and of herself. Netflix's much less artistically successful Persuasion adaptation was described as a Fleabagification of Jane Austen, with Anne transformed into someone resembling a millennial era hot mess. He means to disarm me with candor. It isn't working <laughs> yet. Probably right? And we see the influence in shows like Alma's Not Normal and Out of Her Mind and Oscar winner Promising Young Woman, which too focuses on a messy female protagonist navigating the grief over losing her best friend. Crazy bitch! Excuse me? Part of what's so seductive about this sadness is how it challenges the traditional male gaze and allows female characters to exist outside of it. Previously, these more alternative women may have been filtered through a male lens, turned into fantasy, manic pixie dream girl characters whose sadness is just one of their many adorable quirks. I can't believe I'm crying already. But now these messier, sadder characters are paired with a depth and richness that makes them less cute and more relatable. When we meet Mabel from Only Murders in the Building, it's in the middle of her processing a huge amount of trauma. She's not simply a meek foil to the show's two male leads. Instead, she's an equal partner whose story and background is just as important as theirs. I know it's nothing compared to what you went through, but... I had it pretty hard after everything happened. In Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Heloise is in the process of having her story and her character reduced to an image commissioned and paid for by a man for her wedding. Director Celine Sciamma turns this act of painting Heloise's portrait into a film where men are almost entirely absent. The result adds layers and richness to who the fictional portrait subject is. It's a devastating ending because we know the true story of her life is about to be forgotten, but there is a catharsis in knowing that we've heard it. So what does the sad girl really have to be sad about? That's one of the criticisms leveled against the trend. That hers is a bourgeois, middle-class struggle that can sometimes feel like no struggle at all. Normal People author Sally Rooney's protagonists are often lumped in with this criticism, because while they're gloomy and unhappy, their lives seem kind of fine. Oh sorry, were you talking to me? I wasn't listening because I was thinking about how pale and thin I am. I find it all so troubling. 
These waif girls fit into the sad girl aesthetic, but their sadness doesn't feel directly connected to anything in the way that, say, Fleabags is connected to losing her best friend and her mother. It's a more existential French new wave-esque ennui. Rebecca Liu describes this archetypal millennial as pretty, white, cisgender, and tortured enough to be interesting but not enough to be repulsive. Often described as relatable, she is, in actuality, not. Why can't make people love me? But it's a widespread fallacy that sadness must have one clear, easily diagnosable cause, or that only people with the most extreme problems or hardships get to feel depressed. Perhaps the problem with the sad girl label is how it reduces lots of different complex experiences to something universal. Singer Mitski has spoken out against the label herself, and you can see why. Her songs may be sad, but they also speak to lots of other nuanced emotions. And her specific experience as an Asian-American woman is obviously inherently different from the experiences of Lana Del Rey or Taylor Swift. The sad girl thing was reductive and tired like five, ten years ago, and it still is today. Michelle's Honors, New York Times best-selling memoir, Crying in H Mart, may fit the sad girl moment, but as well as exploring Zahner's own grief over the loss of her mother, it also touches on a wider immigrant narrative that has gone underexplored in mainstream culture. Other sad girls in pop culture are likewise communicating something else more specific. Davy in Never Have I Ever dispenses with a lot of the stereotypes associated with portrayals of Indian American characters and comes across as more well-rounded, while not shying away from her angsty, rebellious feelings. Davy, you are so desperate to not feel sad. You've made your whole world about this boy. I'm a teenager. My whole world is about boys. And there's a lot of emotional power in Zendaya's sadness as the troubled Rue in Euphoria, as well as her role as the messy, complicated Marie in Malcolm and Marie, and her interpretation of MJ as a more insular emo kid in the Spider-Man franchise. The public conversation around mental health over the past decade or so has really brought people in touch with their emotions, giving them a language to identify how they feel and work through it. This sad girl media all feels connected to the millennial and Gen Z generations who understand the importance of mental health, but live in a world that's still largely run by people who don't, or prefer not to. So while some iterations of the sad girl may seem shallow at times, there's something paradoxically joyous in having your feelings of sadness reflected back to you, and being able to cry, scream, and rage without fear of embarrassment or shame, taking comfort in knowing we're all the sad girls sometimes, in our own distinct ways. Every time I feel good, I think it'll last forever, but it doesn't. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and hit the bell to be notified about all of our new videos. 